Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to a very special episode of You Forgot One. Today, we are going track by track through one of the greatest albums of the last 20 years, Death Cab for Cuties, Transatlanticism. Micaiah? Briefly, before we jump into our interview today with Troy Aragon Buchanan, Troy is a musician who has played with lots of bands. Uh, He is also uh, the son of a Dove Award-winning musician. He himself is a multi-instrumentalist. And along with you and I, Troy contends that this is one of, if not the best album to come out in the last 20 years. So Micaiah, what's your argument for Death Cab for Cuties Transatlanticism, an album that is not universally appreciated? Yeah, this is a tough episode because this one is strictly personal. It is all about the fact that I heard this when I was in middle school and this was, you know, probably one of my first favorite bands. And it was the band I was listening to as I was like forming some of my first bands in like high school, you know, so it, it, this band, this album and the albums that come before it, the photo album and plans are all very personal to me. So it's going to be very hard to objectively say why this needs to be on there. When it comes to the albums of the 2000s, so far we've looked at, is this it by the strokes? I believe that belongs on there, but my top three, personal favorites of that decade would be Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco, Illinois by Sufjan, and then this one. I mean, those three albums really make up what that decade was for me. Uh, This is right there in just like that that indie rock sweet spot, uh, the the early 2000s, where there's just like that, that... the, the new emerging New York scene with the Strokes, Interpol, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, The National. But then you also have other artists breaking out, The Shins and Death Cab out of the Pacific Northwest. And there's also the, the emo movement that's happening at the same time. And there's kind of a blurry line for some of these bands over like indie rock and emo and even when, as we were growing up as kids who were called emo kids but would never be self-described emo kids, listening to things like Dashboard and Brand New, uh, Death Cab was this crossover band that you could listen to that wasn't emo. You would call them indie rock. And they were the first band I listened to where I was like, this is a cool band, and I think I might actually be cool for listening to them. <laughs> Um, so that, that's one thing that's, you know, like, like going to like a death cap show is like, Oh, there are adults here. It's not just a bunch of angry teens, angry, angsty teens. Like there are, there are college students at this concert, you know, it's something that, you know, so yeah, it's just a musical awakening for me. And, and as someone who was learning to play a bunch of instruments, these are the songs I was learning to teach myself how to play drums, to teach myself how to play guitar, teach myself how to play bass, you know, uh, yeah, so th- this is the stuff I was listening to. This is how these are how how I cut my teeth, I guess, if that's the saying. You know, talking about the the best albums of the 2000s and for you it would be 
this one in Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in Illinois by Sufjan. For me, it would be Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, Transatlanticism, and Is This It by the hmm. Strokes. But again, very similar, very similar list in terms of top three of the 2000s. I would probably, I'd probably make an argument for Funeral by Arcade Fire in there yeah. as well. I meant um, to mention them. And I meant uh, to mention Bright Eyes too. Yeah. Oh, and then, I mean, a, a great year for Bright Eyes in 2005 releasing Digital Ash and a Digital Urn and I'm Wide Awake It's Morning in the same year. Um, but really, other than what Connor Oberst did in 2005, Ben Gibbard's 2003 releasing both Transatlanticism by Death Cab and Give Up by Postal Service in the same year is, is really incredible. So there's not a whole lot of great arguments to be made for this album other than we love it. And this is a great album. I, I almost wonder if, as we think back on this album, as rock critics and historians think back on this album now, 17, 18 years removed from its release, how much of its lack of notoriety, how much of its lack of prestige is, is in many ways because of the fact that this album became the darling album of the indie rock movement. And so as soon as that movement was no longer in vogue, this album for many became kind of a flash in the pan that they don't value this in, in the way that they should because the packaging this album came in for them was the packaging of, Oh, this is a part of that indie rock movement. And so when the indie rock movement came and went, this was seen as, is not uh, a serious piece of work or, or an album worthy of long-term credibility. Like the Rolling Stone 500 list is not very kind to indie rock music. So, you know, you, do, you don't find things like Transatlanticism, Sufjan didn't make the list. And I don't think any Bright Eyes albums made the list. I don't, maybe, I don't think so. And like Funeral by Arcade Fire is number 500. Mm-hmm. You know, which to me, when I saw that list and that was 500, I went, this is not a good start. Uh, <laughs> well, it, was, it, was, it was weird because I was like, oh, glad that's on here, but also not a great start. And meanwhile, there are how many Captain Beefheart albums on the list? But I think, I think one uh, reason why people um, don't go for this album or this band is what kind of broke them nationally was the Fox melodrama, The O.C. The, the first season, I think, ends with the closing track of this album, and then they play, they appear as themselves on the show for the second season. And so I think, and then immediately after that, signed to a major label. Mm-hmm. You know, so even I think in the indie rock scene, there's kind of a, maybe like a bastardization of this band and album kind of tied to it. So I'm going to assume if you're listening and you've gotten this far into this episode, you share our love and affection for Death Cab for Cuties Transatlanticism. So this may also not be three, three people who are fans of this album trying to convince you. This may just be a, a, a deep dive into all the things we love about Transatlanticism 
And if you love it too, you're going to enjoy this. So with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to let you hear from today's sponsor. You're also going to get to hear a brief message about today's indie record store of the week, which is Atlantic Sounds in Daytona Beach, Florida. And then we'll be back with our friend, Troy Aragon Buchanan. This week, our independent record store of the week is Daytona Beach's own Atlantic Sounds. Atlantic Sounds is located at 138 West International Speedway Boulevard in Daytona Beach. They can be reached 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day at 386-258-1420. And of course, you can reach out to them online at facebook.com slash Atlantic Sounds. Atlantic Sounds Record Store has been open since 1982. They have thousands of new and used vinyl records and CDs and hundreds of music and movie posters. We encourage you to support them or your local independent record store and maybe consider buying this album, Death Cab for Cuties Transatlanticism on vinyl today. Hey everyone, my name is Troy Aragon Buchanan. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I'm a musician. I work at a church here in Atlanta called Eastside Church. I uh, moved here about two years ago. And uh, yeah, I love this album. This is my favorite album of all time. It holds that spot. I think that, so I was like looking up earlier cause I was like trying to put the album in context. Cause I, I experienced the album for the first time many years after it came out and really so trying to like yeah I, so i mean i in 2011 i went over to our friend mike's house who was like the music guy in st augustine florida and this was like prime ipod days and i had like the big chunky classic ipod and so i'd go over like once a week and he would just load it up with like whatever music he was listening to and he was like, dude, you got to listen to this band, Death Cab. And I had heard of them, but I'd never really like listened to them before. And so he put like every album that was out up to that point. You know, I don't think Codes and Keys had come out yet. So it was like every album up to that, that point on my, my iPod. And I went home and I started playing like Paper Mario while listening to Death Cab. And I was just listening to the albums. I thought I was listening to them in order, but for some reason, Transatlanticism was the last album that played. But I listened to all of them. So this was like, six albums I mean, you know it was a four hour span or whatever and at some point i just like stopped playing the video game and was just listening and I'm, i remember the feeling when transatlanticism ended and i was just sitting there in silence and i was like what did i just experience and so that was like my first that was my introduction to, to death cab and i've never sort of turned back but again yeah that so was, i experienced it sort of it was eight yeah. years after it came out right maybe okay. we should start maybe we should reboot and kind of go over the fact that I was in middle school when this album came out. It came out in 2003. I was in mm-hmm. seventh grade. Mm-hmm. You almost couldn't be in a more perfect position mm-hmm. to receive an album like this. Yeah. Rob, where were you in October 2003? 
in October 2003, I was in my second senior year at the University of Central Florida. Mm. Um, UCF stands for you can't finish. And uh, <laughs> I, was, I was there for a long, long time. And I was about to turn 23 when, when transatlanticism came out. I was nine years old when this album came out. Okay. Yeah. So, no, but that, see, that makes sense. We, I think some of our listeners need to know that. Yep. Because, like, when we talked about the Strokes, Is This It, I was in fifth grade when Is This mm. It came out. So that was not on my radar in fifth grade. So right. Transatlanticism is the first album we've discussed where I was there in the mm. moment when it happened. And that's another reason why I, like, can't let go of the idea that this is one of the best albums of all time. Right. You know what I mean? Because I, I was just the ripe age for it. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, Troy, let me ask a couple of questions. And, and for our listeners, that they're, they're not aware of this. You, you are a musician, but you are, in many ways, a musician by birth. Your dad mm-hmm. is an award-winning uh, musician, and you spent in, essentially your entire life living as the child of a professional musician and the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with that. You grew up in a house in many ways defined by music. Mm. You were exposed to uh, everything from R&B and funk and hip-hop and soul and rock. I mean, you grew up with an eclectic musical background. And yet an album that you did not discover until eight years after it came mm-hmm. out holds the space as your favorite album of all time. Mm. So help us understand that. I was thinking about that earlier. And, and obviously there's a difference between saying something's the greatest of all time and saying it's your favorite, right? I mean, I think the greatest album of all time, and this obviously is still subjective, but I don't know. A Beatles album is probably what I would say. But my favorite would be this album. And I think, I think there's an element of, I can engage with it on every single level. Like musically, there's so much to engage with for me. Sonically, just r- lyrically, like some of my favorite lyrics ever, like on every single level, there's, there's layers, but also it's accessible and you can engage with it on different levels, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what, I would, that's what I would say. So it's fascinating because after I got into Def Cab, I realized that I knew some of the songs on plans because I know that's, that's at least like accolades wide, wise, that's sort of the album that gets the most amount of love in the pop culture sphere. Yeah. yeah and that's when so, they go to the major label, they get Grammy yes. nominations, all that kind of stuff. They play SNL. Yeah. Yes. And so I knew, because my dad, especially at the time, and I, he's tapered off over the years, but like he was real vigilant about listening to music. And so I do remember living in Nashville. That album came out in 2005, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, hearing those songs later on. So what, what is it about transatlanticism that makes it your favorite album? So we, we talked about you can experience it on every level. Mm. Unpack that a little bit for us. What do, what do you mean when you say that? What is it, as you think about this album, if it's possible, what is it about this that speaks to you? I love listening to music as albums. And I know you guys get that. Like that's just growing up. That's how we listen to music. Is it like, you know, we had this whole thing because we, we traveled a lot growing up and we would literally like 
we would take, there were four people in my family at the time and we would literally go in rotation and we'd pick an album to listen to and we'd listen to the whole album on a road trip. And that's sort of like, you know, we're like, oh, it's a five hour drive. Cool. We have like six albums to listen to. And that's how we did it. Right. And so even today, like in sort of like Spotify playlist culture, I, I have a hard time engaging with things. Like I like listening to albums front to back. And my wife, Karina, is so annoyed with me because I'm like, you know, to this day, I put on Good Kid, Mad City and I want to listen to Good Kid, Mad City, the album in order. Like, I don't want to go to, you know, jump album to album or even within the same artist. I'm like, I got to, you know. And so part of that is like, this was, and I think this is the first Death Cab album that they thought about as an album, not just like a bunch of songs that were good. I, I think this album from front to back so well thought through. And Wikipedia calls it a concept album. I don't know if, I don't know if they would agree with that, but I definitely think there are like thematic through lines. Um, but for me, like this album is so, I view it so much like an, as an album that I, it's, it's fascinating. Like if I just scroll through the playlist, I know every song, but you could put a song on it and I have to think about what's the name of this song. I can't remember. Cause like, I don't listen to it like that. You know what I mean? So one fascinating thing that I, as I was sort of reading up on the album today, and I actually didn't realize this, I don't think, was that this was Jason's first album with the band. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess he had toured with them before this, but like, this is the first thing he recorded on. And I mean, that's every, like Jason to me, like, is the backbone. I mean, you know, we always talk about drummers as the backbone of the band, but I mean, he's, it's everything. Like, and I love Jason because he's like a drummer's drummer. Like the dude Mm -hmm. on like every level is technically proficient. Like you can tell that he listens to drummers, not like he doesn't listen to indie rock drummers. Like he, he's a drummer's drummer, but he plays to the music. You know what I mean? Like he plays so, I don't want to say so far below what he can do, but like, and, and, then, and then when he does like let loose, you're like, oh my God, like it's been there the whole time, but it's like so restrained. Um, I think I, st- I, I, this may be a hot take for some, but I still think it's the best sounding Death Cab album. I think like, it hits the sweet spot for me of technology had advanced so much at that point that we're, you know, we're using digital effects by this point, but they're still recording on tape. Right. And so even like the drum takes, you're like, that's one take of drums, right? There's no comp in here. Vo- same with vocals. Like you hear these little imperfections that make it feel so human. Um, but like, you know, we, we had gotten to the point where, where, you know, the, the guitar sounds so clean and so like, it's sort of like watching movies from like the late seventies, you know, we are just like, this will never age. Right. Chris Walla, who, who is no longer with Def Cab, mm-hmm. but was for their first eight albums, guitar player, keys player, producer. I mean, it, he, he was in many ways, Ben, Ben Gibbard is the songwriting force behind everything that Def Cab for Cutie does. But Chris Walla, in many ways, is is the arranger of Ben mm-hmm. Gibbard's music. Chris Walla is George Martin to Ben mm-hmm. Gibbard. Yep. One and of the George things Harrison. that I think, yeah, yep. and George of, Harrison, right? And one, yeah. yep. One of the things that stands out to me about Transatlanticism, you, you talked about it being the best sounding album when they essentially got their first kind of big payday from an album, Chris Walla does what, what any producer does. He essentially, they live in Seattle and he buys a very, very small corner studio that was famous really for nothing else other than the fact 
that Nirvana had recorded Bleach in this one room, one booth studio that's really kind of shaped like a pie piece because it meets on kind of a five point intersection. So the building really looks like a, a, a wedge of, uh, of a Trivial Pursuit game. Yeah, but it's it's more of a Seattle staple than that. Soundgarden, Mud Honey, mm-hmm. uh, they'd all recorded there. But most yeah. famous so the, the Nirvana Bleach. Yeah, album. Uh, yeah. The, the, that's the most famous album because the the Soundgarden album that was recorded there was really just vocals for um, a Bad Motorfinger, right? Yep. Yeah, and so Chris Chris Wallace spin, spins their kind of first um, real real money. Actually, and it was before even photo album came out because they were, they tracked and recorded photo album there. Right. Mm. Um, but basically, he he bought a small studio, and that became home base for them until they signed a major label deal. And so you think about in a very small studio space, without I mean, again, technologically, there's a lot that's available to them in the early two thousands that is not that wouldn't have been available even ten years earlier. Yep. But Five still, economically, they're not in a position as a band, nor are they in a large enough studio to have access to all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so hearing what Chris Walla did, both with producing and mixing transatlanticism, makes sense why he became, after this album came out, Chris Walla became more famous as a producer than as mm-hmm. a member of Death Cab for Cutie. And for... 10 years after this album came out, Chris Walla was kind of a sought after indie rock producer. He, you know, there, there are a lot of albums, I think specifically about those first two Tegan and Sarah albums where mm-hmm. they sought Chris Walla out and they're going, Hey, we want to record with this guy. We heard what he did on transatlanticism. And so I think that so much of the work Chris Walla got really up until about 2015, until he left death cab to go move to Scandinavia uh, right. It, it, essentially, all of his work he was getting not as a guitar player or arranger for Death Cab, but as a producer mm-hmm. for this album. And, and so I, I'm with you. I think this is the best sounding Death Cab album. And when you consider the the studio they were using to do that for tracking transatlanticism versus what they had at their at their disposal when they tracked it in and recorded in mixed plans yep. with with big big label money mm-hmm. this still is a better sounding album i was gonna say so and, and this i think speaks to sort of one of the themes of the album that i'm sure we'll get into at some point but i feel like so much of that and it's i think i do think elements of this is missing from from recorded albums today is that most of the album was recorded in that studio, like that one studio. And like something about the, the characteristics of that studio, it carries through the entire album in a way that nowadays it's like, we did, you know, three months in New York, we did three months in LA, we did what the drummer was not even with us. But, you know what I'm saying? Like something about like, and it's the same reason I love, you know, Blood, Sex, Sugar, Magic, Chili Peppers. Like, they rented a mansion and did the entire album there, right? Like, a lot of those old Motown records, one room for the entire record, right? There's, like, that continuity almost. Um, but, but I was thinking specifically about the sense of, like, space and, like, space as a concept, like, it is all over the lyrics of this album, you know? But also just, like, physical space, um, I think, is a, is a vital part of, of this album. Let's, let's just go track by track. 
Let's do it. I think we can do it. Let's start right. off with yeah. the opening track, maybe the best opening track on any album in the last 30 years, The New Year. about this being the best sounding album these are the best sounding hi-hats in recorded ah. music <laughs> yep these are the best hi-hat sounds i have ever heard Troy, i'm so glad where you called jason a drummer's drummer because mm-hmm. i think that's the truth there, he he has so much just in the way his drums sound and the way he plays so much charisma so much creativity mm-hmm. he is an active songwriter in the way yep. that he plays the drums I mean, it is, it is wild. He is not there just to keep time. This is, a, this is a great opening track. What I think makes it... So I, I, there's an argument to be made that Smells Like Teen Spirit is a, is a better opening track. Mm. Um, that London Calling is a better opening track. Like you can, you, can, you can have those conversations. I am of the mindset, and again, I, I understand Troy, what you're saying, that I, I don't know that... that I don't know that Ben would say that this is a concept album. Mm-hmm. I think Chris would say it is. Mm. If this is essentially an album about what happens to love as you get older, I think the new year is announcing to the listener right up front, this is what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. You know what else is great about this song? First of all, I'm one of these corny people who January 1st, guess which album I'm listening to, baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every January oh, 1, yeah. and I get in the car, I listen to it, and I don't stop driving until it is done. Yes, sir. Right? So I, this is my, let's, let's go for it. Let's start, let's kick it off. Right? And I've been doing that since it came out. Right? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, this has been a new tradition for me for a long time. But now I've turned 30. And this is the new year, and I don't feel any different. It's starting to hit differently. It's different, man. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Getting older, that it is starting to feel very different Hmm. than when I was 13 years old. This is the new year, and I have no resolutions or self assigned penance for problems with easy solutions. Dude. As, As concise. And clever a yeah. lyric as you can get. Yep. That doesn't even sound like it should be in a song, those words. Yep. yep. Okay. Well, dude, and, and the, the bridge lyrics, I mean, it lays out the entire album, where, where you're going, right? Like, I wish the world was flat like the old days, that I could travel just by folding the map. No more airplanes or speed trains or freeways. There'd be no distance that could hold us back. I mean, that's like, that is the through line. Through, I mean, in the opening two minutes of the album, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you know what's great about this song, too? 
looking at where Death Cab comes after or goes after this, it's a big rock and roll song. Mm-hmm. It is a big rock and roll song. And they don't really do these big rock and roll songs mm-hmm. anymore. And it starts unlike any other Death Cab. Like, photo album does not start this way. Mm-hmm. Study your footing. Um, title track, uh, We Have the Facts, does not start this yep. way. So this is a, a different start to a Death Cab album. It's big. Yep. It's rock and roll. It's anthemic. But in an indie rock way, not an arena rock way. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty pretty much a perfect song. And talk about a a wild shift track to oh yeah lightness lightness man. Not a big rock and roll song, but one of the most interesting songs on the album. Oh, instincts are misleading. You should. Don't tell you what you know you should want. So, a couple things about that I love about this track. I love so about the entire album. The the background noises that go from track to track. Yes. I'm just obsessed. And it's another reason I can't, I can't jump around this album because as soon as that little, and it's, I don't know what, I don't know what they are half the time. It's like, it sounds like a campfire and like, but like, as soon as I hear that, I'm like, I got, it's like, this is next. You know what I mean? Like, I, so I love the synth bass in this album because that's not something you hear on Death Cab up until this track. I mean, this might, Maybe this track is the first one that's got like synth bass in there. Yeah. And then, and then th- this, this track has my favorite line on the album. Um, you shouldn't think what you're feeling. I, come on, man. It's simple. It's direct. And it gets you right where it hurts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Instincts are misleading. You shouldn't think mm-hmm. what you're feeling. I mean, that mm-hmm. as a teenager, I mean, that is, that's what you need. And then mm-hmm. you get older and you're like, then you then you get to, then you start having more life experiences and you're like, oh oh this is change. See that's the thing about this album is it changes for me in so many different mm. times in my life. Rob, you might be mm. jealous of us because we we've been able to listen to it like as a coming of age album, right? From like middle school, high school, that's what college, I'm, and adult life. Yes, that's what I'm, I'm, I wanted to point that out with New Year. I'm glad you said that, Makaya. Like, I am the age now that Ben was when he was writing this album. He was 26 when he was writing it and he was 27 when it came out. I'm 26 years old right now. And I had that realization today. And absolutely, that is absolutely the case. I hear these songs so much differently. I heard them differently as a 17 year old, as an 18 year old than I do now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's get into title and registration. Yeah. Again, I look. Title registration. It's. It. I mean, it's. It's cleverly written lyrics, mm-hmm. 
and obviously it get it gets expanded i think the um you know we, the song gets far more rocking by the second half mm-hmm. um i think one of probably chris walla's best fender Rhodes playing is at the end of title and registration yeah um yeah but i mean just a great song it, it, a song that again, if this if this was their first album on a major label, and not in a, another album on Barsuk, if this if this album had come out on a major label, title and registration would have been a big hit. Yep. Oh, yeah. And you know what I think is even better than the riff itself, which by the way, everyone wanted to learn when I was a teenager. Um. What's even better than the, the the riff itself is the tone of the guitar. Dude, mm-hmm. I was I was just thinking that. It's pristine. Yeah. It's 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 one of the best sounds on the album. An album that is filled with great sounds. So far we have the drums on the new year, mm-hmm. the synth bass and lightness, the guitar mm-hmm. tone on title and registration. I mean there there are so there are so many things in there for musicians to really latch on to. And the combination now of the electric drums has these weird moments where instead of doing weird fills, he just like disrupts the time signature. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's really, it's really strange, but it, especially with a song that's just, it is that riff for so long. Yep. It's those little interruptions on the drums that like bring me back away. What the, what, 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 what did he just do? You know, that, that, that's, that's the stuff that, like, keeps me coming back mm. to a song like this. The layers, man. Uh, should we get into Expo 86? I pick up a guitar, I'm gonna play Expo 86. You better believe it. I love this riff so much. Oh my gosh. For our listeners, you're definitely hearing three musicians who have a song playing in their head and now can't stop from doing it out loud. Absolutely, mouthing it. I love the vocal effects they do with Ben's voice, especially sort of as the song builds to its peak, like all the distortion and stuff. It's cool because it's it's the whole like, like sweet and sour thing with Ben's voice. He's such a, you know, he has such a smooth voice and then like making it all grungy and stuff. It's just perfect. It's, it's very rock and roll. It gets very mm-hmm. rock and roll, you know? And I, that, that's what I love from Death Cab. That's why their later stuff is less appealing to me because I love Death Cab as a, as a rock and roll band, mm. you know, especially like moments on Expo 86. And I think this is a lot of some of my favorite wordplay. Mm-hmm the interplay of what's happening musically with the lyric, like the song begins essentially with it's, it's, it's four chords, but the way the four chords are played on the guitar, it's essentially the, the one, the one and the four of the chord around the four chords. So it ends up becoming like a weird circle circular. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it becomes yep. almost like a, a circle of fifths, like guitar teaching technique. Like if you were, if you were teaching someone like how to play within a scale, 
you, you would teach them essentially the Expo 86, this progression that just takes you kind of round and round these four chords. Yeah. It, and then it takes you to sometimes I think the cycle never ends. Like just this, <laughs> the interplay of those two ideas, like here's what's happening musically. Oh my God. Here's the theme of, of what's happening in this song. When does it break the cycle? When, when does that cycle break? It doesn't break in, in what we would consider the pre-choruses. It, it only breaks in the, the choruses or, or what, how we might define them as bridges. Mm-hmm. But I'm waiting for something to go wrong. I'm waiting for familiar resolve. Like that's the, that's the first and only break you get away from this kind of circular like game of fifths guitar part that Ben's doing is these heavy chords that all are escalating. So they're all coming up the neck of the guitar. I'm waiting for something to go wrong. And then the second time he goes into it, like I'm waiting for another repeat, another diet fed by crippling defeat. I'm waiting for that sense of relief. I'm waiting for you to flee the scene as if you held in your hand the smoking gun and on the floor lay the one you said you love. And then we finally arrive at essentially what (laughs) would be considered, I guess, the chorus is the the, chorus, right? And it's strange. They're all basically the same. So I don't ask names anymore. (gasps) If ever there is a, a thematic precursor on this album for tiny vessels because tiny vessels is a is shocking even Mm. on this album were it not for the chorus of expo 86 Mm. which is this thing if you realize this kind of cycle that he's talking about is this never ending Mm -hmm. oh it like love and loss is all the same what here's what i'm here's how i'm expecting this to end this is how it's going to end names don't even matter anymore this I, I I love this so much. Sometimes it seems that I don't have the skills to recollect the twists and turns of plots that took us from lovers to friends. And I'm thinking I should take that volume back about the shelf and crack its weary spine and read to help remind myself. That is a mouthful. Mouthful. I he sings it, dude. I fuck that up every time I sing in the car. Yeah. <laughs> every single time. It is a mouthful. So going off of Expo 86, then they they lead into the shortest song mm-hmm. on the album. Two minutes, Poppy 12 seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sound of settling. I've got a hunger Twisting my stomach into knots That my tongue is tied off My brain's repeating If you've got an impulse, let it out But they never make it past my Big single indie rock hit, like in indie rock scenes. You know, this is this was a this was a big song uh, played on a big TV show. And when I was younger, I didn't dig it. And it was kind of thing too. It's like it's kind of poppy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like it it was it was by no means the cool song on the album or the cool song to like. I, actually, on this listen, I was singing around, you know, doing the bop bars, and I was just mm-hmm. and then I just stopped smiling and then started thinking and i was like wow 
<laughs> yeah, man, I've been singing this song for a long time, and that second verse hit harder this time. Didn't <laughs> I was and, just and, about to say the second verse, man. Yeah, yeah, and then and then I was like, huh, <laughs> I'm an old man listening to the music of my youth, and I'm driving around in my Nissan Versa in a place I never thought I'd live. It be it became a new song, and I was like, you know what? This is the perfect album. I can't wait for this episode of the podcast. <laughs> Dude, I'll sit and wonder if every love that could have been if I had only thought of something charming to say. Come on, man. Yeah. And yet, the I mean, the first line of that is, our youth is fleeting, old age is just around the bend, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to go gray. Like, yeah. it's... It's no, I'm like, going gray. I've got them. You can't see here. I've got them on the side. I got them up top. And this is like the first time I've listened to that song where I have noticeable gray hairs. And, I was just like, mm-hmm. and that's where I was just like, but I was 13 when I heard this song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, and now I have gray. Like, it, it was really bizarre. Well, and also, I just want to say, too, before we get to Tiny Vessels, the fact that this song is nestled in between Expo 86 and Tiny Vessels is just, that's a decision, like, someone makes that, and they're like, wait, really? And they're like, yes, trust me, trust me, like, and it, and it plays, it, it works. It does. It, there are, there are a dozen bands that would have, that would have placed We Looked Like Giants there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and made it. Mm-hmm. three thematic songs that go together but to place sound of settling there in stick we look like yep. giants after death of an interior, of an decorator. interior decorator yep yeah again perfect mm-hmm. i don't know any other band that would have made that decision yeah see i think i think that because this is definitely like uh, metaphorically the end of the first part of the album, right? And I feel like if, if we are viewing this as a concept album, the, like the end of Sound of Settling going into Tiny Vessels is almost like the break of, it's the, you know what it is if I had to make an analogy? It's, um, it's, it's backseat freestyle on Good Kid Mad City where you've gotten this narrative up to that point and it's all narrative and it's sort of like mm-hmm. the, from the perspective of you're outside looking in on this character and then you get to see the inside of what's going on in their mind, right? And Tiny Vessels is like, it's the breaking down of all these things that someone else is singing or telling you about. It's now like you're now inside their mind as you're experiencing it. You touch her skin fact that Tiny Vessels is the first of these three songs, this is gut-wrenching. Because if you mm-hmm. follow thematically through what this is telling, it, it would seem to be on the surface that this is the story of someone in a long-distance relationship having an affair with the person he is not in the relationship with into mourning the distance of the person he's in a relationship with into a, we are together again. This is what the comfort of love is actually like. But starting from this place, 
in that trilogy. I mean, this is still to this day. I mean, with with some of the divorce songs about his relationship to Zoe Deschanel that are on mm-hmm. Kintsugi, like this is maybe the single darkest song mm-hmm. Ben Gibbard's ever written. I I don't know about you guys, but there have been moments where I have had to think to myself, did I just walk myself into a tiny vessels moment? Did like did I just like pass a point where it's just like someone's mm. gonna get hurt? Mm. And that's part of what I keep coming back to with this album being a like a coming of age album for me just because I've experienced it in so many different ways. I've I've returned to it at so many different points in my life that this is another song where I'm like, did I just walk into tiny vessels? Mm. Yeah. I I think the hard part about this song in in good on you for being um self-aware enough in the moment to go holy Mm -hmm. crap did i just walk into the song yeah if there was a if there was a song written for brief stories of hideous men this Mm. would be that song let's i'm gonna jump ahead to what oh the best ben gibbard bridge Mm -hmm. i mean okay maybe certainly the most evocative yeah I wanted to believe in all the words I was speaking as we moved together in the dark sex and all the friends that I was telling all the playful misspellings and every bite I gave that left a mark when tiny vessels oozed into your neck and formed the bruises that you said you didn't want to fade, but they did. And, and so yeah. did I, that day. that is, yeah, man, that is, I, I had a friend uh, talking about this uh, when I was in college where he's like, hey man, you know that bridge to tiny vessels? I'm having a rough day. I was just like, <laughs> God damn. I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> like, like this song, I mean like yeah. for young men who like listen to this, and they're like, great song. And then eventually they're like, yeah. oh, harsh reality. Great song, mm-hmm. harsh reality. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and we'll we'll talk about this too once we get to we look like giants. But I also think it's it's super. We, there are not enough songs about sex that are like encapsulate those feelings that also exist in sexual relationships. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there are fun, playful songs about sex. There's like braggadocious songs about sex, and then there's like lovey dovey songs about sex. But like this kind of honesty from again from I just from a 26-year-old, like, real profound stuff. There's no country song being written about uh, from, from this point of view. There, um, outside of maybe Andre 3000, there are not mm-hmm. hip-hop songs being written from this point of view. Yeah. Like, this, this, this is a... <laughs> this, this is an honesty, I think, about the worst of what especially as men, but maybe just as people we are, we are capable of. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of those songs that I, I think about the song now. So again, I was 23 when this album came out. I think about this song now. I'm, I'm the 40 year old on the podcast. who's you know, been married for almost 16 years. Like I, I have no relationship to the experience of, of dating or, or kind of like hookup culture, or like the Tinder movement, or like the, like that kind of cultural shift. Like I, I, I just have no relationship to it. But I wonder if a song like this, like 
if it hits mm. different now or if it or if it's more germane now than it has ever been. I don't know. I'd be curious to know how many people put <laughs> like quotes from this song in their Tinder bio. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that's a great question, Robin. I, I don't I don't think I have an answer. I mean I think I think in a lot of ways as a culture we still you know, almost 20 years later, we still don't talk about sex better than we did in 2003. You know, I mean, we like, we have better conversations about things like consent, but like the emotional, like baggage and complexities of sex, I still don't think, you know, we're having better conversations than we were then. Dude. But in a way that like an indie musician has to, or mm-hmm. only like an, I don't want to say only an indie musician could, but like, a major label, like if they mm-hmm. have someone that the label is depending on making them millions of dollars, they're not gonna let yep. that artist put this song out. Right. You know does I mean? does this song make it on, on plans, right? Like that's a great question. No chance. Yeah. It has to does be that. what Sarah said. It can't be this. Yeah. yeah. Love is watching someone die. It's not uh when you ask is something wrong, I think you're damn right there is, but we can't talk about it now. Just like, oh, you asshole, God. like, we're not yeah. putting that on your album. Yeah. You asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't make plans. No yeah. chance. It, Atlantic yeah. Records is not releasing that. Mm-hmm. No. Especially when you think about even the way Tiny Vessels ends. Tiny Vessels doesn't end with, like, a nice conclusion. No. Nope. Like, it ends with that thing, like, we can't talk about it now. We can't talk about it now. We can't talk about, like, like just this, we can't talk about it now. And what is left at the end of we can't have this conversation now is just a boom, 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 boom. like the, yeah. the like this almost <laughs> this almost infinite setting reverb echoes you know swell that just goes goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and then that that almost like that that echo feedback then somehow becomes the metronome for transatlanticism I don't even know what that soundscape is. I don't know what that click is. All I know is one of my favorite sounds. Mm-hmm. You're talking about that final, that final sound that goes into a change of So apparently, I was reading about this today because I was curious. Apparently, it's a very slowed down plane engine. Like the actual thing, like it's starting mm-hmm. up and like the it rotating and making these like clanking sounds and like really slow down. Yeah. And so it sort of pitches it down too, which again, thematically about distance and traveling. I mean, come on, what the hell? Like, hmm. well, and so then you think about where all that stuff would have been recorded. Boeing is based there in Seattle, and Chris Walla, of all the four guys in Death Cab for Cutie, the only one who had any kind of consistency of their childhood. Ben moved a lot as a child. Nick moved a ton. Nick was an army kid, so Nick moved a ton as a child. The only member of Death Cab for Cutie that essentially had a childhood in the same house mm. was Chris Walla because his dad was a career guy with Boeing. Hmm. Wow. Thank you. 
I need you so much closer. All of that distance, all of that sonic space, all of that reverb, all building to you are away and I need you closer. There aren't a lot of lyrics to this mm-hmm. song. It's far and away the longest song. The, the longest album, song, yeah. With very few lyrics, um, all of which are very evocative. I don't think people understand how hard it is to write a song that's that long, that kind of slow, and that interesting. Mm-hmm. There are a number of dynamics that make this song work. The building up from the previous song is one thing, then the piano, which is wonderful. Then the moment the electric guitar comes in. Yeah. And then there's the moment, of course, the big build with the drums, which we we now have have, have heard the, some of the most interesting drum sounds, drum beats from this guy. And at this point, snare and ride. Yep. Snare and ride. Just banging on it. I mean, this, I mean, this is so stripped down, so bare, so raw. And it just comes down to like pretty much a single lyric. Yeah, I mean, this song, it, 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 it's a master class. I keep using this space tonight, but it's its a master class in space. Like, I, I was reading an interview with Chris, and he was talking about this album, and he was saying how the original demo for the song was, like, 2.45. Because it's just, like, like he sang the two verses, essentially, and then, like, and then did the, the bridge section a little bit. And just giving space, even between, like, the instrumental between the verses the instrumental leading up to the bridge coming in or the chorus, whatever you want to call it. Like it, it, it makes that because you have to sit with each line, you know what I'm saying? You have to sit with each verse after it's been sung before you get that next bit. And so by the time you get to the end, it is such a release, right? Like it's, you built up this tension throughout four minutes. And by the time those drums finally build up, I mean, it's just, it's just epic. Another thing I love about the end of the song, this is another great example of just Chris Walla doing little, little things that make such a difference is the chord change in the bridge. Like, mm. b- you know, basically once that, once that, you know, four, one, six, five, four, it like, it just, it just over and over again, it just loops. And then whenever it goes to the six for the first time, when you, when they're saying, I mean, it's just like, it, it just recontextualizes the melody. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. And it makes it, it's like, Oh, we can sing this another two minutes now because you made it more interesting. Like, right. No, this, yeah. this, this album is filled with nuances and, and these dynamics that keep them from being, it, it could just be a couple chords 
straightforward drum beat and just go for it but there are those little nuances that just take it to the next level to keep it more interesting With, with what is now matched with essentially an appeal in, yeah. in imploring that hasn't been there. So it's, I need you so much oh. closer. I need you so much closer. So come on. Yeah. So come, like, yeah. We're talking about a perfect album. Like, We're talking about a perfect album. But, we, but it is uh, it is a thing of like, here's an album I already love. And, and I think on a subconscious level, these are all the reasons why I've always loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but in talking about it this way and in talking about it with people who also love it, who are also musicians, like you realize how just how well crafted it is. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. every every second every note every instrument like everything is so intentional on this album so like again just like the well-crafted well-intentioned like this song ends on that four chord the d goes into the first note of the next song which is in the key of d it's just the i mean it's like you don't even feel like you're changing keys you're just like Mm -hmm. oh it's like i find a nice landing and you're like oh my god it's like recontextualized with that first like Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to passenger seat, but Is the other benefit of the length of transatlanticism as a song is that in some ways it has given enough time to clean your palate from from tiny vessels so that you can come into passenger seat that that if if transatlanticism were even a minute shorter would would the lingering effect of tiny vessels stain your you, you the way that you hear passenger seat or am i alone in that no i i absolutely agree i think there is something to the repetition of i need you so much closer that when it when it starts it feels needy and it feels whiny and by the end, it feels like an honest admission of I need love and I need to be loved. And I'd like that to be you, right? Like you, you feel like the trend, like 
the transition in in this in the meaning um and so by the time you get to earnest expression of of care for someone and and of and of uh giving language to being cared for right like getting driven home it feels honest and his wife were essentially wed to this song. It's not just my favorite song on this album. It is, in fact, my favorite song ever written. Wow. Passenger Seat by Death Cab for Cutie. And honestly, I can try and put words to it, but I'll be honest, like, it's one of those situations where just words fail. To me, this song is so... It is biblical for me like it is just so like and actually i meant to say this earlier but like part of what i love so much about the lyrics for this album and this may be a little bit inside baseball but i'll try to make it like understandable like my favorite book in the bible is ecclesiastes because the point of ecclesiastes is we're all fucking made from dirt we all get up we work and we die eventually and the whole point is the best you can do is just enjoy your days in the sun. Eat well, drink well, spend time with the people you love, and that's all that matters. And for me, like this song captures that so well that the climax of this emotional. So this is like the third act, right, in that trilogy we talked about: tiny vessels, transatlanticism, and passenger seat. The climax is what we assume is a drive home from being at a house party or something. Ben's probably too drunk to drive. And so this person he's in love with is driving him home and he's just enjoying it, right? In the first two verses, he's just talking about his experience. And then he's talking about this question he's asking her. And then it's like this admission at the end, when you feel embarrassed, I'll be your pride. When you need directions, I'll be the guide for all time. And it's just so mundane. It's so we've all had this experience and this is like the climax, right? And for me, it's just, it's just everything. And yeah, uh, my wife walked down the, the aisle to the song and it's just, it's just everything for me. One of my all-time favorite albums. I don't believe there's a bad track on this album. If I was forced to cut any song on this record, Death of an Interior Decorator would be it. And I um, say, take me instead. All <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it is the it is the only song on the album not written in first person. 
Yes, I, that's literally what I was going to say. Yeah. Take me instead. That's what I say about this song. Dude, the beginning of the song is wild. Come when on, the guitar dude. comes in. Why? So what happened? Okay. Again, inside baseball music stuff. What's happening there? Because he's doing, it's another three count, right? Because he's doing like a one, two, three, one, two, three. He like flips it, man. Like, it's one of those things where I can play it, but I have a hard time t- explaining what's happening there. Like, Yeah. No, by the, by the time the guitars come in, it's like, wait, are they playing the same song? I, I used to do that for, I used to do that just for you as sound checks, by the way. Like, all right, uh, kick and hat. I go, pss, 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 cat, cat, pss. and every time you'd go, that's right. You'd, you'd snap and be like, oh, it's, it's happening. Dude, the, the harmonies, the melody and the harmonies on mm-hmm. both times this sings fell just like falling in love again. Oh, dude. The only yep. song not written in first person, the only true story song, the most musically complex song in the album. So again, I, I, I hold that this, taking nothing away from how great this song is, I hold that this song is the one mm-hmm. outlier, both thematically and musically, yeah. in this album. You know what album, to me, this song sounds like it can also belong on? Plans? Not plans. Narrow stairs. Yes. Oh, like this a like song, a, like a sister track to Kath. You're you're you are returned to. We looked like giants, which is right smack dab into the theme. I mean, and again, we looked like giants is a slightly more, um, a slightly more innocent version of Tiny Vessels, but. Right, thematically, practically the same song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a more juvenile version. Yeah, yeah. This is why you shouldn't scoff at my middle school thing because that's a very middle school, high school mm. song. Double bass on a song. Double bass. Troy, Troy, the the best bassist I've ever met in real life. Tell us what we need to know about We Look Like Giants. Polyrhythms, man. It's all about polyrhythms. And I couldn't have told you that if you polyrhythms. God, honestly, I'm not going to do a good job of explaining. It's again one of those things I can do it, but but so Makai, you may be the one to take this. I can I can I can show you an an example of it. No, I, I would be fumbling. Uh, I mean, do, you could try doing an example of it. 
I mean, I think I think the idea is you're just you're cutting again. So if if music is just math, it's you're cutting up the pie in weird ways, right? So again, this is another song that's in it's in four four times. So you can count it in four, right? Like one two. But the rhythm the bass is playing is ba 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 ba. So it's just like you're cutting you're, the, all the pies are un, uneven, right? You're not cutting like cutting up evenly, right? And, and then just, the drums it, come in so good. Yeah, no, that that song is I didn't I didn't even realize how intricate We Look Like Giants was until a couple years after having listened to it for a really long time. Cause I went down to play it and I was just like because I just like sat down, I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like this Oh dude, and you take into account the the bridge of that song where it breaks down this like halftime like sixteenth note oh. thing on the drums. Come on, dude. It's so it yeah. really does. At that break, that that's that's a that's a break beat, bro. Yeah, like it's just like I was like, okay, then when does Nas come in? But I, I love the nostalgia in the song. Do you remember the JMC mm. reading aloud for magazine? It's just like, man, that's so. And even though when I heard it, I was just like, yeah, hey, that's kind of like us. But you know what I mean? Because like we did, we, we, we there were certain magazines that we read, alternative magazines, and you know all that kind of stuff. But yeah, there, there's something really great about the youth that's captured mm-hmm. in that song and uh, the nostalgia that's in there that. He, the wacky drum beats, the hip hop beat mm-hmm. that, that interjects and intervenes in there. It's just a it's just a cool track and honestly a very strange one to come before the final track mm-hmm. we are now three songs from transatlanticism of like i need you so much yep, closer i need you so much to, closer to to and i held you closer mm-hmm. and all of that echo reverberation all of the space that that has that was gone in this jam of a song all comes back the space hangs on at the end yep. and i think the space is what what is for me that the space at the end of we look like giants is what makes it not a mm. difficult juxtaposition it's not a, it's not a hard pivot Good. because that space allows for that acoustic guitar to come in that starts a lack of color
what a great, I mean, yeah. if, we, if we think about the beginning of an end of an album, mm-hmm. New Year as an opener, lack of color as a closer on this album. A lesser band would have had transatlanticism yep. and gone, oh, that's the album yep. closer. That's the album closer. Yep. Call the, it a day. The, the brilliance of Death Cab mm-hmm. is going, no, 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 no. That's mm-hmm. the seventh song. Like that's yes. that's that's the peak of the story yes. we're telling. Yes. A lack of color is our is is our conclusion. Oh, and dude, that is I mean, that is like elementary storytelling is that you mm-hmm. you know, the peak of your movie is four fifths of the way through or whatever, so that you have that time to come down. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. and I think dude, Rob, to what you're saying though, that's that's everything. And again, that just speaks to Chris Walla, like Every single one of these songs on this album could just end. You know what I'm saying? They they can just mm-hmm. like last chord, song ends, next song. But the the reason and the way these songs transition so well is is that extra care and sound design, and that's how you get from "We Look Like Giants" to "A Lack of Color," which those shouldn't they don't they shouldn't feel right up next to each other, but they do. Mm-hmm. You know, like it feels like you should go straight into "A Lack of Color" from passenger seat. You know what I'm saying? Like the vibe of those songs, but those, the, the ins and outs of all the tunes, man. I mean, just expert stuff. On your machine, I slur a plea for you to come home. But I know it's too late. I should have. Using the language I've been using this whole time is there. There is a space or a room that they have created sonically for that riff to be played in. Yes. Yeah. You know. So there, there, it, it, it does. I mean, it is an easy one for the three of us to sit around, pick up an acoustic, and play it. But we're not going to get what's on the record because there is something else that they've created for that track that's also yeah. there that's, that is essential for what mm-hmm. makes it what it is. To me, this song is this character reaches emotional maturity to yeah. own their shit. That was me. Like, and I can't, I can't do the whole just like a blame, uh, whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah. This is I'm saying, I'm saying the real thing. You know, this this is an eleven track album, and we just spent an hour and a half taking it track by track through this phenomenally well produced, well written, well intentioned well-designed album and only one person has to edit it it's just not fair as we have looked at this album in its totality now even just in our conversation over these last two hours about each of these tracks and the way they work what are the things that you're thinking about this album now now that we've taken the time to go through each track what are what are the things that you know, you've always thought about this album or, or thought things you've recently thought about this album that are, are all the clearer after this last hour together. This is another Pastor Rob moment. <laughs> oh, do you wanna, I have to tell you a, a, a Luke text I got today. Uh, I think he was listening to um, Parliament, the Parliament episode. He goes, at 5.52, he texted me at random and said, Another big pastor thing Rob does is frame statements statements as questions with 
I wonder. <laughs> then I told him, I think he slides into Pastor Rob whenever he says, we're so excited. This, this is small group. <laughs> we've all read John 3.16, but now that we've dived into it, what is this saying to you now? Sorry, I had to. <laughs> you know, some, uh, some, some of it's just basic, you know, storytelling process, but I'm with you. It is. It is. So for me, it's two, two things. And the one thing I'll say quickly is just that. You know, they say a movie is made three times. It's made in, in, in the screen, the screen right that you do, the, in, in, the, uh, in the text. It's made in the shoot, and then it's made in the edit. And, it, and this is a, just a perfect example of an album that is made iteratively, right? It is made in the writing and the demoing. It's made in the reworking of the songs in the tracking, and then it is made again in the edit. And I just think the, the edit and uh, the arranging of this album in the order it's in elevates it. Uh, I mean, two levels above where it would be if the songs were just cut and dry, back and back and back and back. Um, and the other thing was just, and so, I mean, so it's sort of related to that actually, was just, and Robbie, you kept bringing this up, was, was how when you listen to this album as an album, um, the, the song that comes right before the song you're listening to influences the way that you experience that song, right? On a, a lyrical, emotional level, um, I mean, I've never, I've never considered that passenger seat can be perceived completely differently if, if it is put somewhere else in the story, right? And so when you, when you listen to this album, you really are going on an emotional journey with this character. Um, and you really, feel, you really feel that you're in their shoes as they're experiencing these different uh, emotional experiences. I'm thinking about like anything from the existential to the mundane, this album is ingrained yeah. in me. And I have experienced it and realized it and lived it uh, through so many stages of life and being able to talk about it now about how intricately it's all put together and crafted just really solidifies that this is a a masterful work of art that is just made to last yeah and not a lot of albums are this is this is we were talking about this album potentially being stuck in time and it, yep. it's very 2003. And, and I love it for that too. Yep. Um, but it's made to last. Yep. You know, and, and I think it holds up incredibly well in the production mm-hmm. and the writing and the sentimentality. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think this is the, uh, one of the strongest, most consistently great albums, track for track, that we've, that we've done so far, even though it's the least canonical. Yeah. Mm there's something special about this album that as much as I love this band, they have not come close to replicating. And I don't know what the, what the combination of those factors is. I think there's a lot of them, but I also think there's to, to the point of what so much of this album seems to be about. Once those moments in time are lost, they're lost. And you can write songs about them and you can mourn them in different ways and you can grow from them. Um, But at the right time, 
these four guys had the freedom and the time and the opportunity to make the album that they wanted to make. We've already done our second episode was on Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. It is my second all-time favorite album, I believe. If you're asking me greatest albums of all time, I think it's the second greatest album of all time. And for me, I would still, there's, there's a track order switch that I would make on Blood on the Tracks. There is nothing I would change about transatlanticism. That may be incredibly just personal to me. Um, but I, I think this is an album as, as, the generation, as the generations who this album is important to grow up. I think this is an album that will receive its long overdue acclaim maybe 10, 20 years from now. Mm. I think that's true. I do too. God. Rob, do we do we get a landing or do we need to try and land again? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Troy, thank you so much for being with us on this expansive nine-volume episode of <laughs> You Forgot One, the dive into Death Cab for Cuties, Transatlanticism. Uh, for our listeners, Troy, how can people stay up up to date with you? What do you have going on? What do you have coming out? Do you want to tell us a little bit about the television show that you are appearing on? <laughs> do you want to do you want to talk to us about you and Karina's podcast? So I have I have a music Instagram that I don't use enough, but I'd use it. It's called it's Troy Creates. So it's T-R-O-I Creates. So follow me there. Um I am a background extra in Genius Season Three, which is Aretha Franklin, which actually was a hell of a lot of fun to to film. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks, bud. Later, boys. Good talking with y'all. Bye. This was great. This was fun. We'll chat with y'all soon. Yes. Yep. Well, we want to thank our guest and our friend Troy Aragon Buchanan a fellow lover of all things Death Cab for Cutie, and more importantly, a fellow lover of Transatlanticism as one of the best albums of the last 20 years. Micaiah, as we conclude this episode, let's wrestle with our question that we wrestle with every week. You and I clearly love this album. This is a favorite album of ours. Is this an album that should be a part of our first 25 of this podcast? I feel like I'm the wrong person to ask, and you probably are too, just because of how personal it is and how close we are to it. So it would be very hard for me to say yes or no. But here's what I keep coming back to. We're trying to make our list, right? We are looking at, a lot of the albums that have long been on some of the greatest albums of all time lists, and, and we're out to make our own, right? And I, if we're going to make our own list, how can you and I not put this record on it? You know, uh, it's, it's great. I think it's one of, you know, track for track, one of the most flawless albums that we've looked at. Mm-hmm. Right? Even with We've decided on Revolver by the Beatles. Uh, every song on here is better than Yellow Submarine. You know, I mean, for, you know, that's why, you know, that's why I think. Yeah. 
you know, so, you know, what does that mean something? I don't know. Uh, but no, I just, I, I, I dig this album. I love this album. And for this first season, yeah, let, let's, let's have some controversy and let's, let's throw it on there. And by the time we go to make the 100, you know, just because it's so personal, we'll just, we'll put it in the bottom 10 and we'll see how it holds up against everything else that we're going to look at. And that's, that's where I am with it. Okay. And, and I, I, I like that approach. So here, here's what I would say. You know, we did our Parliament episode talking about Mothership Connection. And we decided Mothership Connection should be in there. And, and really almost as much in an album to recognize Parliament, Parliament Funkadelic, to recognize P-Funk and their contribution to music history. And I, and I think that they're, again while there are really thoughtful arguments to be made when we talked about adding Parliament's Mothership Connection, we talked about Mothership Connection, not One Nation Under Groove, not Maggot Brain. We did Mothership Connection because we just love that album. Yeah. And so I, I want us to be a little more confident in this. Yes, this is personal for us. This is something that, that we love, but I'm okay with that. And I am planting our flag in the ground right now and saying, Rolling Stone list, you forgot one. You oh. forgot Death oh. Cat for Cuties, Transatlanticism. <laughs> oh, man. The tone of the podcast has changed drastically. <laughs>